For the Record, our bi-weekly show in which we take one recently released album and take a deep dive into it. You can listen to us every other Thursday at 9.30 a.m. on BFF.FM or subscribe to the podcast at ForTheRecordPodcast.com. For this episode, we're talking about the third full length from a Chicago songwriter who lived in the Bay Area for a while, unfortunately not anymore, named Ezra Furman and his album Perpetual Motion People, which I just can't stop listening to. It's honestly one of my favorite records this year. And it starts out with a barn burner of a track called Restless Year. Barn burner. Bar- <laughs> it's a fun word to say uh-huh. if you're, you know, awake and not heavily caffeinated. But in this case, it does really apply. So I appreciate you bringing it back. And I think this is just such a great opening track. It's really frenetic, high energy, but I think it's also really welcoming. And I think this is also the first and so far only video from the album. So I think it gives us a little more context and it proves that Ezra Furman may have left the barrier. Clearly still feels a connection because it was shot in San Francisco and of course coming back to the song itself i do appreciate that it has that upbeat music and yet the lyrics i think are about a kind of marginal existence someone who's you know celebrating i got a bus pass and you know riding the bus around perhaps the most excited (laughs) mention of a bus pass in any song it's yeah it's a lot of fun and you know wearing some cheap clothes and maybe feeling a little unrooted there's no place that feels like home to him yeah i'm not a big watcher of videos but i will link to that one in the post because i've i've honestly watched it like seven or eight times it's just really fun it's shot in like stop motion video anyway Ezra Furman is someone of whom I first became aware when his album Day of the Dog came out in 2013 and I believe he was still a local artist at that time and I try to keep track of the local music scene and I really loved his voice first and foremost I have always been a big Violent Femmes fan. I think maybe they were the first band that I ever truly loved and felt connected to. And his voice has the same sort of nasal about to break quality as Gordon Gano. And I love that he incorporates horns, which can be risky, but I think he really makes it work. So we sought him out at the South by Southwest Music Conference back in 2014. And we saw him play at his ba- with his band, The Boyfriends, at the Sidebar, which is a pretty small venue in Austin. It doesn't even have a stage. And so the band is just kind of set up in a corner of the bar there were maybe like 50 people in the audience and he just completely sold it like his band was great he was great he was sincere and funny and just had a way of making me feel such a personal connection to this music and then hearing this song that starts off the new album it's just so fun and manic and it sets the listener up for all the different themes that he covers over the course of the record 
yeah, right away he's establishing these common threads that there's this up-tempo sound, which combines a variety of really throwback styles and instrumentations, but sometimes in kind of interesting combinations. And then meanwhile, there are these lyrics that can paint a very vivid portrait, but also I think a very shaded portrait of, I think, a very modern lifestyle and existence that he's living. And that portrait, I think, is generally very personal, but I think he does step back on at least a few occasions to look at the big picture of more social and economic trends. And that's certainly the case on this next song, Potholes. One thing for that song, it's the catchiest song about casual racism that you're going to hear in 2015. Yeah, it may only be August. I think that's a safe prediction. <laughs> so one of the things that amused me when I was doing some background research on this album was that Rolling Stone and some other questionable publications referred to Ezra Furman as a, quote, San Francisco-based songwriter, even though I believe he didn't even live in the city. He lived in Oakland. And there are at least four songs on this album that explicitly reference living in Chicago. Like there's... One where he's going from Hamilton to Hyde Park and then another song where he's driving on Lake Street and then Potholes is all about the north side versus the south side. So if you haven't spent a lot of time in Chicago, you might not be aware that it's very segregated between the north and the south side. And I used to spend a lot of time there and I would walk around all day exploring different neighborhoods and everyone always gave me explicit instructions about where not to go. And, you know, it was staying north of certain areas. So in this song, he's not only kind of making fun of how casually Chicagoans treat this very serious problem of de facto segregation, but also expanding it out with the lines about how it's not just about Chicago, it's every city has its own divisions, usually based on race. And if you're just blithely observing the boundaries and sticking to your own side, you're missing the bigger picture. Yeah, this song really nails this kind of unself-aware sense of entitlement that I think is pretty easy for someone who's privileged to enjoy. And I think there's some interesting points in the song. He talks about getting robbed if he goes to the bad part of town. And, you know, there's one level that's like, oh, that sort of attitude about, oh, the bad part of town, you're going to get robbed. But then also, I think the way he describes it, it's like, oh, well, I'll have to cancel the credit card and buy a new phone. And you get the sense like, yeah, it's not actually that big a deal. He can afford a new phone. And it's not really that devastating. So I think there's just like layers of kind of class awareness there. And then he sings so happily about how, oh, the cops are on my side. Mm -hmm. And there's this recognition like, oh, they're on my side, not necessarily on other people's side. But then also, I don't care. They're on my side. So I'm good. And there's just this real economy of the lyrics. So I think each word and each sentence packs in so much. It's very impressive. And we spent the last couple minutes talking about the lyrics, but what he does with the instrumentation and background vocals really plays into the larger message, too. And when I was listening to this song, I kept thinking of two tracks from the Stand By Me soundtrack, which I had on cassette and wore out the tape when I was in middle school. 
And one of them is Get a Job by the Silhouettes, and the other is Yakety Yak by the Coasters. And both of those are sort of perfect examples of that 50s doo-wop style that he's referencing here. And, you know, the 50s were also a time when there was a lot of racism and a lot of lack of awareness about the impact that it had on non-white people. And by using that musical style, I feel like he's doing a good job of wordlessly making the connection between Chicago of the 1950s and how little it really has changed. So we're playing these out of order because we wanted to group them together according to the themes that he's addressing. And another song that looks at broader societal issues is this one about the difficulty connecting to people in modern society. And it's it's the second track and it's called Lousy Connection. The century seems like it's turning out okay. It's like a game of worldwide karaoke. And my rich friends and me to sit and blow smoke rings. There's nothing happening and it's happening too fast. Try to interpret, but the message is scrambled. The institutions that I lean on have crumbled. I've got the world here, I'm all fucking mumbles. I guess I'm just another link in a chain. As you're, as you're well aware, I don't always focus on lyrics, but on this album, just throughout, the vocals are really prominent, very clear. And I think in this song especially, they're just very memorable and quotable. You know, I mentioned this economy of language before, and here he's just able to cover so much ground in these little chunks of one or two lines. And his take on modern social media as a game of worldwide karaoke is just such a succinct indictment that I, I've ever heard. People have spent so many words and he gets it in that one line. In the first verse, I just love this bit where he paints this vivid portrait where he kind of pulls back the curtain on sort of the sordid side of the hipster lifestyle where he describes it as a world of blue lipstick and syringes with your bedroom doorway with the bugs in the hinges. I just it, love it. And he's able to draw a line between the sort of brokenness of an indi- individual personality and the larger societal issue of all of us having lousy connections to each other and the institutions like our representatives and government that we used to feel like we had a voice in. Yeah, he doesn't just blame society, though. He's pointing the, the finger at himself. You know, he's point. he wants to work for change, but then he also insists on wearing an Indian headdress to court, which sort of undermines him a bit. But it is, I think, tough for him when the world is so overwhelming. And he says at the right at the start, you know, modern society is my one secret weakness, which I just love. And I'm just going to stop. This song is too quotable and I could just spend an hour talking about it. But it's also impeccably constructed as music. I think the verses really build the anticipation for these choruses. And then the choruses are incredibly catchy. And then it mixed in there are these little moments of quiet reflection. And I did say before, I think, He's not breaking new ground musically. It's just a lot of references and a lot of different styles, but they work organically and he's able to cram in all these clever lyrics, but the sound still always works. 
Yeah, we faded out there on a sax solo, and this whole record just has a ton of sax and clarinet and three different kinds of organs, according to the credits. I think they've also got an upright bass. So he's starting with some unconventional instruments and then using them to create these very unconventional sounding songs, but they're all just so catchy and so well-crafted, and they all start out in one place and go somewhere else over the course of the song, and that's the sort of thing that keeps it interesting and kept me listening to this album over and over again. So Lousy Connection talks about the bigger picture, but it also addresses the frustration at being stuck in your own head, and that's another theme that runs strongly throughout this whole record, and the song that addresses it most explicitly is called Haunted Head. I get the pressure, I wrap myself in something I think it's clarinet is doing so much work there and it's so subtle but it takes this song that could be really depressing and just gives it this very upbeat do 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 <laughs> thank you for that that was oh. beautiful uh yeah a little of that texture does go a long way i think in taking the edge off of some of these otherwise pretty intense experiences i think he's as Furman is you know letting us inside his head a little bit and it's maybe not the most pleasant place to be in that first track we heard this real manic energy that was very delightful and now we're kind of hitting kind of the flip side of that where he's really depressed and he's he says, I'm going through the motions like a champ. And apparently that includes just waking up and just kind of staying inside with the blinds drawn and just, you don't really have to get dressed because who cares? But at the same time, as with all the songs on this album, he's looking at this experience in a positive way as just being part of life. And I love the line where he inverts the cliche of hanging on by a thread by saying, I'm hanging on, if only by a thread, and putting the emphasis on the positive. Not that I'm hanging on by a thread, but yeah, I am hanging on. Now, I appreciate that interpretation. I think I heard that lyric and didn't quite pick up on that meaning. And I think it does put the song, I think, in better context, because I think for all the fact that it could be seen as wallowing in depression, and I think there's excessive drinking where he's just hugging a toilet, but it feels hopeful. And these choruses are just so upbeat and catchy. I think he puts this vibrato into his voice for those choruses, and it's just that resonance to it. Just I, I wrote this note when I first listened to the album that he's like a whiny, depressed David Bowie, because there's just something so epic there. And that I was surprised to see that resemblance, but I really was reminded of that. And I think it does help to elevate the song into something really special. He's acknowledging challenges, and yet he is determined to find a way through. He doesn't lose hope. And I think we hear that quiet determination in this next song, which is one of the most down-tempo on the album, called Ordinary Life. I'm sick of this record already Let's wreck all the preconceived notions we 
it, bring to it, check all the baggage, or better yet, burn it, and start all over again. Let's start with your life as you know it. Way back in our mother's wombs, folded like notebooks, we had no idea of all the tote bags and meat hooks waiting out in the world. One September in Boston, I lost the will to live. I was just like an astronaut cut from the ship, floating and waiting to die. I was sick of my heart and never life. I was so sick of ordinary life. I was sick of this ordinary life. The human mind gets sick real easy. As we pointed out before, we're grouping these by theme, so those two down tempo songs don't come right in a row on the album. But the fact that this comes at the start of the B side on vinyl, I read that by the way, I'm not a vinyl nerd. But that also calls back to the theme of restlessness because we're only halfway through and he's all and he's already telling us that he's sick of this record already. And the bass drum there does a great job of sort of punctuating that feeling and the sense that you're just kind of plodding along. Yeah, I think most of the songs on this album do seem to be very much about the here and the now. And I think that this is a nice sort of the rough midway point where, as for Furman, he's taking a moment to reflect and maybe look back on an earlier time in his life and he's you know, looking at a challenge that he successfully overcame or at least lived through where, you know, he felt lost and hopeless, like an astronaut cut from the ship, floating and waiting to die. What a great image. But it's, you know, inspiring because whatever the situation was, he made it through. And I think that gives him reason to be hopeful. Yeah, he's spoken in, openly in interviews about how some of the inspiration for this album came from a period in his early 20s when he was suicidal. And I read an interview in The Guardian where he discussed the decision not to be on medication right now because he recognizes that while he has his ups and downs, it's mild enough that he's able to deal with it and just sweat it out the couple of times a year that it gets really bad. And maybe I'm projecting here, but I thought the penultimate track, Can I Sleep in Your Brain, might be about one of those times. It just makes him want so badly to get out of his own head and into someone else's. Can I sleep in your brain This anger 
transition that we hear there is just such a great moment of catharsis that we have this kind of melancholy organ, which sounds almost like it could be in a church kind of dirge, but then it's replaced with this optimistic sound, which sounds like it's straight out of the British invasion. And then later the horns get layered on and it just becomes fast and warm and joyful. And yet the lyrics don't change that he still wants to get out of his brain and into someone else's. And so there's really that contrast between this presence of hope and yet it's the clear reminder that it's not an easy situation at best. Maybe it's bearable. And yet being bearable is a triumph after a fashion. You're right. The song is very hopeful. And it's also sort of the flip side of that theme of restlessness. I think throughout the album, he's looking at this need to keep moving as not being a motivator that's leading him somewhere but as a sometimes frustrating inability to ever sit still. But then every time you go somewhere new, it's still not what you wanted. And there's a line in Lousy Connection where he says, there's nothing happening and it's happening too fast. And that's the sense of this song too, that he wants to get out of his own head and into someone else's. But even if he were able to achieve that, it still wouldn't be satisfying. And I think that sax line that comes in towards the end there comes across as joyful, but also kind of anxious. It just conveys that feeling of having a manic urge to move on, even if you're not moving toward anything. Yeah, that is a good point. I think there's yet another case where there's just this ironic contrast between the tone of the music and the content of the lyrics. And I think that drives a lot of the songwriting on the album and makes it so interesting that we feel the hope. And I'd like to think that we do because he does, but he's contemplating this escape, but it's not it's not going to give him peace And so I'm glad that we do have this next group of songs on the album where I think that he tries to pivot away from running away and instead try to embrace himself and, you know, learn to love himself a little bit. And at least that's how I read this next song, Wobbly. But there's a good essay he wrote in The Guardian that you can find on Google. It's really worth reading, where he talks about considering himself gender non-binary and how gender fluidity is a big part of his life and his music. So that's another of the big themes on this record that's probably addressed most directly in this song. 
Yeah, I think the way he dresses it is mostly pretty oblique. I think, you know, we heard that reference to wearing a $5 dress on Restless Year. But I think that mostly gender is sort of subtext to a lot of these songs. But here, of course, he just straight up says gender and uses that term as part of his description of being wobbly. And I think that he's kind of lumping together this bipolar where you can be up or you can be down and this gender fluidity where you can be masculine or feminine in any given moment. And there's the sense that he's accepting both of those and also maybe acknowledging that that can be a little bit tough for him to feel that way and also tough for others you know says you you might get attached to a particular version of him of him that's manic and feminine and then the other times he's gonna be masculine and depressed and he acknowledges that but he's demands the freedom to be those things because that's who he is and not conform to society's need to put him on in one category and pin him down like an insect in a specimen case and you know there's this the sound to the song it just has this great off-kilter energy that i think complements that subject matter really well I think you hit on what ties this album all together, which is that I think it's about the way that society tries to pigeonhole all of us into something that's easily labeled. And he may have previously felt like an outsider because he didn't feel like he fit into any of these boxes. And what I hear when I listen to this record is an expression of joy that you don't have to fit into any of these boxes and that's okay. You can be restless and you can keep changing and you can use that energy to light a fire in your life in a good way. And that's what's going on in this next song, Tip of a Match. Hey, I mentioned a few minutes ago, Ezra Furman calls out Lou Reed and his androgynous presentation as something that was a real inspiration to him. So I have to believe that that guitar riff there that comes in about a minute from the end is an intentional reference to Sweet Jane. Yeah, I, the subjects on the album are really raw. And yet, you know, and he's sung by someone who's unapologetic about not fitting in. And yet all, almost all of the songs, I think, are really conventional and conventionally pretty retro sounds and so i this song kind of sticks out as being a little more modern much more fuzzed out and noisy and raw sonically and then it climaxes in this revelatory metaphor that you feel rough and red and out of place but you also have the potential to burn brightly if you just accept yourself and that's not necessarily going to be easy so that just that line if you feel like the tip of a match if you feel like the tip of a match strike yourself on something 
that is not an easy instruction to follow, but you do get that sense that, you know, Ezra Furman is living his life by that advice and it is working. I mean, he's being himself. He's making art that's personal and universal and art that rewards repeat listens. You know, I have to say the album never, I didn't fall in love with it. I think like you did, but I kept listening and I kept not getting bored and that is not easy to pull off. Well, I did love the album and I try to limit how much I evangelize about music I like because I don't want to be that music nerd who is always trying to shove things down other people's throats. But I do get asked quite often to recommend stuff to friends that they might not have heard about. And this album is definitely going to be at the top of my list. Um, Please check it out. There are other songs we didn't play on the show today that are just as good. And trust me, you want to hear all of them. We're going to go out now on perhaps the most powerful and joyful statement on the whole record about learning to love who you are. And it's called Body Was Made. We've been discussing Perpetual Motion People by Ezra Furman. And this is For the Record. Thanks for listening.